Guys, today's episode actually has a ton of fine dining news. Back to basics. We are talking about a new chef at Qua, Gagan closing its doors, Favikin's new projects, and so much more. Stay with me. Welcome back to the show, folks. My name's Justin Kana, and this is episode 41 of The Emulsion, a show where I talk all about the news stories that matter to me as I navigate my career as a professional chef. Thanks so much for joining me. We're going to get right into it into a second. Uh, but if first, if you aren't subscribed to my email newsletter, that would be great if you could do that, because... I send all of the show notes, basically, from this show, which I think is super, super exciting, uh, as well as a bunch of different deals or, uh, you know, heads up from things that I've been interested in in the restaurant space. Uh, let's get all these comments open on the YouTubes. If you aren't subscribed, you're definitely missing out. Last week, I sent out a few bl great Black Friday deals I found. But in short, it's a list of my favorite things from around the internet from that week, including new and discounted gear or just, you know, stuff that I've been playing around with. All the stories from the show, again, if, you're re if reading is your preference, that is a great way to kind of make sure that I'm curating what you're reading. Um, it's also updates on some of the other content that I've produced over the week. I would love for you to check it out. It's on justincona.com. If you just want to spend a couple seconds on the page, a handy dandy little pop-up will magically appear. Just drop your email in there and hit send it and you'll be on the list. Hello, hello to Mastrop watching. Uh, if you do enjoy this show or any of the content that I do, there's a super convenient way for you to help me uh, grow, support me. It is called Patreon. Go ahead and uh, head over to patreon.com slash justincana. Find that. This show is supported by you folks. No other sponsors or ads. So I'm super, super grateful for that. So first of all, we had some crazy news coming out of San Francisco this week. Qua, which is San Francisco's newest three-star Michelin restaurant, is getting a new chef. So this is actually a double news story because we also have to talk about what's happening to the previous chef. So Matt Kirkley, who was previously at L2O in Chicago, is kind of a, a, a star at plating. He's kind of got that insane radish tart that he does. He does his plaid pasta dish, some really, really, some of the most technically and aesthetically beautiful dishes I've seen over the past couple of years. He is going to be in the, the uh, U.S. competitor for the Bocuse d'Or in 2019. So Kirkley is out. He was the previous chef at Qua. Who is going to take his place? Uh, this guy named Eric Anderson. If you haven't heard of him, he was the chef de cuisine of Nashville's famed Catbird Seat restaurant. So he's got the whole shebang. He's got the executive chef title. He's writing his own menu. That's going to debut in Qua in January. But another huge stunner for me was that Daniel Patterson, yeah, that guy who left the kitchen to pursue affordable but sustainable and tasty burgers and fries at local, is currently at the helm of the kitchen. So he that used to be his restaurant. He used to run it on the day-to-day. -day. He wanted to leave the kitchen entirely while still remaining an owner, but now he's he's back in action. So jumping quickly back to Kirkley, he's been pulling 16-hour days while working at the restaurant, running the pass, and then after hours working to train for the competition. And all of that work paid off because he got selected as a candidate. So for those of you that don't know or follow much Boku stuff, they train with the U.S. coaches months in advance in California for the competition. So that, that would take Kirkley completely out of the kitchen and in the picture, in, in a sense, more substantially. And now that it's all out in the open, everyone knows that he is vying for that and actually made it. He needs to start training now. It makes sense to have someone else running the show. Kirkley saying, quote, this is the only time in my life when I can do this competition and still work like crazy to get that done. I have another 35 years to run fine dining restaurants. Qua needs a strong hand at the pass, and I think they're going to get that with Eric, end quote. 
And before we get into my opinion, what is the end of this article from Eater? Like, seriously, it says, saying, quote, it's also a missed opportunity for Patterson to follow through on his goal to bring racial, racial and gender equity to the fine dining world by hiring a woman or person of color, end quote. And then there's an ad an ad for State Farm Insurance for me at the end of this article after that 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 text. It'll probably change when you go to the site. And then an update saying underneath that saying, quote, Daniel Patterson sent a tweet to clarify Anderson's heritage. Quote, Anderson is half, Eric is half Mexican, end quote. WTF, Eater, right? And like WTF, Daniel Patterson. Looking at that tweet, it says, uh, from Daniel Patterson, it says, Hi, at Ellen Fork. Your last sentence is factually inaccurate. Eric is half Mexican. Thanks in advance for correcting it, end quote. So to me, this is some like middle school drama right here, right? Like it's frustrating to see a back and forth like that instead of some like collaborative question and answer interviewing, right? Like if you wanted to say that bit about equality and Eater SF already reached out to Daniel Patterson for the interview, why not just ask him? Why not just say like, Hey, remember that time when you said that you wanted to bring racial and gender equality into the kitchen? Why not just ask him in the interview? They they already said that they reached it. Frustrating. And and this is a point that had to be made with all blogs and articles out there. Updates at the bottoms of articles and tweets that don't get thread edits are super misleading. And I know that in 2017, information overload is real and stories need to happen fast to cater to us humans ever shortening attention spans. But this is a thousand percent the reason I started this show, right? Like, if the only source of news you get in your life is Eater and Grub Street, you're missing the whole picture, right? Like, and I, I, I'm empathetic to it, right? Like, I don't expect you guys to go out and do that work of constantly having to check and recheck people's uh, media. But Patterson gave a backhanded comment to them for good reason, and they didn't execute on his request to correct the article. The media is kind of a sneaky beast, and I, I expect you guys to hold me to the same standards, right? Like, it's one of the reasons I stream the show live right now. I want your thoughts and opinions and even fact-checking. I obviously do my best to keep it accurate and give you the facts, but also... Hopefully, you come for my opinions as well, but back to the story. So, I'll be keeping an eye out, of course. It's no doubt extremely daunting task when one chef leaves and another chef comes in to take the place from two stars to three stars, and then that three-star chef leaves. It kind of shows the impact one person can have on an organization, so it's be it's left to be seen how Anderson will do at the helm. Definitely, his food is interesting. There's more There's more to a restaurant than its Michelin ranking as well. I'm not saying that, that th that's going to be a bad thing, but I know Catbird Seed did a ton of amazing food with Southern inspiration, so it'll be cool to see if any of that finds its way onto the menu at Qua, or if he's going to kind of embrace the uh, California vibes in that restaurant. So does do, do you or do you, do you know anyone that works at Qua? I'd really be interested to know how the environment has changed during this whole entire chef swap uh, scenario, but you can le let me know in the comments if you, if you know of anyone. So next up in Michael Jordan type news, Gagan Anand, the chef of the award-winning Best in Asia, Top 10 in the World uh, restaurant Gagan, is closing his flagship in Bangkok. So for those of you that don't know, Gagan took Asia by storm by kind of taking what he learned at El Bui and applying it to Indian food in Bangkok with quote-unquote progressive Indian cuisine. End quote. So it's not closing tomorrow, right? It, 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 it's just news that he's he's it's in the works. He's shutting it down in 2020. He's got other plans in the works, too. We've had a ton of stories covering Gagan before from, you know, the first interview we ever had on the show. Dave Hadley, shout out to Dave, who I believe is staging there right now is crazy. Um, we even talked about it in the Michelin Guide coming to Bangkok. It was kind of more or less a shoe in and one of the driving forces, no doubt, why Michelin 
started to keep keep a closer eye on Bangkok. It is definitely a ballsy move for him for sure to close close the restaurant. But it's also a strangely exciting move, right? Because he plans to move to uh, Fukuoka uh, in Japan in 2021 with another Japanese chef, with a Japanese chef named, uh, named Takeshi Fukuyama. Uh, he worked at a place called La Maison de la Nature Go, which he says will be the future of fine dining. They're going to collaborate on a restaurant called uh, Go Gone, I think is what it's going to be called. So it's kind of a combination of both of their 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 concepts. He's also flexing his restaurateur muscles, Gagan is, investing in places like uh, Meatalicious, a place called Ga, Su Ring, and even mentioning plans to open two new businesses. So an organic wine bar that serves fried chicken and a tofu omakase restaurant. Very, very interesting. So some of this business insight came through in the interview they did with him for this article, and it's actually some news that I had no idea about. Uh, they ask him, uh, quote, quote-unquote, why Bangkok? And the chef saying, quote, imagine if I were trying to do Indian food in Nordic countries or in Canada or in South Africa. I would really have to struggle to find ingredients, but in Bangkok, I have all that I need, so the spices and the chilies, etc., within five meters. And Bangkok is also one of the Asian cities with one of the lowest cost, and this made my risk more doable. I can serve a 20-plus course tasting menu with seafood and uni and toro and other expensive ingredients for $6 a course, which would be impossible in many other cities, end quote. However, to me, the most impactful kind of paragraph that stood out to me the most with this uh, article, and I'm going to read it to you, was an answer to why do you think the food has to be fun? And he said, quote, but now the problem is that 50% of the people who are coming to eat at my restaurant are going to judge me and to judge my food. They compare. I ate at Narisawa. I ate at Noma. I ate at Heston Blumenthal's restaurant. There are people who go to Gagan only to check a list, and I don't want to be compared. It is an insult to me and to other chefs, so I realized I had to, do, to be far from this trap and this prize and this competition culture that has established, been established in gastronomy and create an experience that couldn't be compared to any other. That is why I started the emoji menu. He started serving dishes that you eat with your hands and created a faster way to serve a 25-course menu. I have to impress that 30-year-old foodie guy who traveled around the world with his $1,000 camera when he comes to my restaurant by serving him random and challenging food. I want to make him think why and how and why and how all the time, end quote. Why is this the first time that I'm hearing a world's 50 best chefs speak up about something like this, right? It's so true. Like, it's so true. And it's calling out a huge elephant in the room in the fine dining space. There's literally a subset of people who travel around list hunting. And it's, it's, it's real. And all of us know about it, but none of us talk about it, right? I've been that person who walks around with a camera and takes photos of, of stuff. There, that I, I had a food blog back in the day. It was called Two Top, where I would go and sit across the table at uh, with really interesting people at really amazing restaurants, and I would write a blog piece about it. Uh, that was a long time ago. But it, it's really interesting that people eat like that, right? As well as the people who are kind of anti-list and kind of seek out places that have little acclaim but really good cooking. That's often how these off-the-beaten-path uh, restaurants get media coverage, but as as most of these media people are, they're always wanting to discover the next big thing, right? Uh, but a lot of people also just ride the wave of the list. They like they 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 have enough capital. They don't want to spend it on on material possessions. They want experience, so they look to these lists to kind of construct a travel itinerary for themselves and just travel around documenting it. And it's it's a real thing. But the problem now is the world is such a big place, and there are thousands of chefs making a hundred moves a minute. Like hell, I had no idea Gagan was investing and in opening in other places. So that's that's just a testament to how big the world is. Uh, 
He also says, quote, every restaurant has a 10-year lifespan nowadays, end quote. And when asked about his new restaurant, Gogon, the, remember the one he's collaborating with with that Japanese chef, he says, quote, we plan to open only six months of the year with 10 seats per day. It's very limited, exclusive even, because it will be in Fukuoka, not in Tokyo. This is, I think this restaurant model could be the future of fine dining. My idea for a place where the personality of a chef is 100% present in his food, it's like a concept more than a meal, end quote. Well, that's huge, right? Like, I'm on the right track, at least. I'm not, I'm, I'm not even close to saying that I'm at Gagan's level, but the fact that my pop-ups are around like 10 to 18 people and I'm huge on fusing my personality into the events means at least I'm on kind of like the similar trail, blazing it in a sense. But what are your thoughts on all this news? Are you a fan of Gagan? I knew in his, um, personally for me, in his episode of Chef Steps uh, or Chef's Table, that definitely rubbed me the wrong way, right? I saw him as kind of a copycat. He was not creative. He was kind of a weirdo. But all of this news is much more up my alley, right? It's gaining some respect. I'm gaining some respect for you, Gagan. So keep it up. Let me know uh, your thoughts in those comments, what you think about all of this news coming up from the Indian chef. So another fine dining news, I told you guys this was going to be a fine dining news episode. Magnus Nielsen and Favikin are in the news because they're going to also pr pursue this limited time kind of pop-up style business model. This all came about because uh, Magnus Nielsen realized there was a ton of creative potential in the staff that comes from all over the world to work at Favikin, but you can't exactly infuse like Singaporean influence into Swedish food and not turn some heads, have people think that's kind of weird or not true to the identity. So... They did some pop-ups this past winter. Uh, the sous chefs ran it, and they've got three more in the works. Uh, they're actually opening very, very soon. A cocktail pop-up called Svart Club, that is Nielsen's Dinner Club, as well as Uvisan, which is centered around Japanese home cooking, and Cruz, which is a bakery and cafe. So what stood out to me the most was the structure and the strategy behind it. So I'm quoting the article, quote, Each of these pop-ups has the benefit and the support and infrastructure behind Favikin, including its R&D department, reservation system, accounting, marketing, and staff management systems. You could see it a little bit like a limited-time restaurant with training wheels that lets the person who develops the concept focus 100% on the product rather than to build the supporting structure, Nielsen says. End quote. So Thursday is opening day for Uvisan and Svart Club. That's tomorrow. And Cruz is already open, slinging coffee and pastries. So we'll absolutely have to see where all of these pop-up pop concepts go into the 2018 environment. But, you know, what else can come from this incubator-style setup? Who can, who can say? But I think it's really, really interesting. We've seen this also with kind of the Noma under the bridge concept, uh, no doubt. Uh, like the 108 concept, it, 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 all of these kind of chefs paving the way with what they have for the next generation is really, really, really inspiring to me. So next up, and a topic I want to touch base on because I feel it's so important, but I don't want to dive deep into it, is depression and mental health in the kitchen. And I say I don't want to dive deep into it because... It's less the elephant in the room, but it's kind of like the wallpaper on the walls, right? Like, we all acknowledge it. We know it's ugly. We know it needs to go. But it's such an extensive and personal problem that I'd rather point you to some resources and give you as much advice as I can to help you. Um, you can have the fittest body. You can get all the sleep in the world. You can be perfectly healthy. But if you're depressed and not mentally sound, you can't do your job. And a lot of the environment in the kitchen contributes to that. So Jay Rayner the, from The Guardian, we've covered him before, he wrote a piece all about mental health in the kitchen. And I encourage you to read it if you're struggling. He had a ton of amazing feedback on Twitter from chefs or food media personalities, but in the article I linked up, there's some really amazing resources for you. So 
Kat Kinsman has a Facebook group to help chefs with their mental health. But so much of this is admitting that there's a problem, right? Like I personally meditate every morning. I use an app called Headspace. It's super convenient. Uh, it only takes a couple minutes and you can kind of cater it to what you're, what, whatever you're interested in, in focusing on for that day. Um, but where was I? Uh, I'm not in the kitchen every day anymore, right? And honestly, the entire thesis of me doing the content and exclusive dinners is to make sure that I don't have to go back to that, right? Like, I had it great in Norway. I worked five days a week. It was long hours, yes, because I was running the show for a big part of the year, but I also had five weeks vacation every year, which was stellar. But once you go there to that place with a really nice working environment, it's really hard to justify going back to six days a week, 90-hour weeks, which I'm super familiar with too, don't get me wrong, but there are if there are opportunities to learn or progress your career, maybe that's worth it, but I don't want you to take my lifestyle as, as an example because there's still an incredible amount of work and hustle required to, to doing what I'm doing, but I think you should seek out these chefs that are adopting these models, right? They're going to attract the best talent, and other chefs are, are, are going to be forced to follow suit soon, and absolutely in no way, shape, or form am I saying you should quit your job and go find a cushy uh, re restaurant job, but there, there are tools and resources you can use today to improve your mental health, which I will argue is is critical, and that can improve your day-to-day, -day, that can improve whatever situation you're in. I have a feeling that there's at least, if, if, if this segment helps just at least one of you, that will be worth it to me. So next up, and in more fine dining news, yes, I tried to tell you guys this is going to be a fine dining episode. Uh, Adam Platt did a review of the chef's table at Brooklyn Fair. He was very, very skeptical at first, right, at $390 for the tasting menu, which does include service, but not drinks. It is very, very steep. And as someone who spends his time kind of uh, ups, trying upscale places uh, all the time, it was difficult for Platt to justify that purchase, right? So, <clears throat> excuse me. But they did move uh, from Brooklyn to Manhattan recently. It is still called Brooklyn Fair, uh, but I honestly haven't heard anything about it lately since they moved. They still got three Michelin stars, uh, but I haven't heard anything honestly good or bad about changes to the space. It was great for me to see um, some of the dishes and the menu. If I'm being completely honest, it reminds me insanely of uh, Fransen in Sweden. They're almost sister restaurants in, in, in a weird way. They both have 18 seats. Um, or Brooklyn Fair has 18 seats. I'm not sure how many seats the new Fransen has. I want to say it's 14 or I'm not sure. Not, don't quote me on any of that. But uh, set you, you basically take these 18 seats. They're set around the kitchen. So the chefs are on stage. Uh, the guests get to watch every single grill and saute and dressing maneuver from low boy to plate. But the reason that I mentioned Fransen is because there seems to be a huge Japanese influence. And you guys can make your own judgment. <clears throat> It is a three-star show. That's that's very true. You guys can make your own judgment. Here are a few of the dishes, uh, and I'm just quoting the article. The show began uh, with a tart of Japanese mackerel, crisp kelp and shiso blooms, a puree of Japanese eggplant, cucumber, and dashi jelly, spooned over farmed kaluga caviar from Shanghai, little rounds of toasted brioche later, layered with ribbons of uh, sea urchin from Hokkaido, topped with a thin wafer uh, heart-shaped black truffle, these polished little bites were followed by a carefully orchestrated symphony of fish and shellfish that began with soft pieces of perch and baby red snapper, dressed with different formulations of daikon, Brussels sprout leaves, and green and peppery kinome leaf. It reached its impressive crescendo with a serving of rosy, barely cooked lobster, dishes of, of, of bay scallops finished by, by the chef himself with drifts of white truffles. 
going even further to say that uh, he had some insanely tender A5 grated beef from the millionaire cattle farms of Japanese Miyazaki Prefecture, dainty little pieces of quail originated from the southwest of France. Uh, she instructed me to eat the sticky, sour, sweet morsels of bird flavored with Dijonese and pomegranate reduction, end quote. So it's great to hear the food was good. All of the di these dishes sound really, really solid. Apparently, it's less stuffy. They allow photos now, something that they discouraged at the now-closed Brooklyn location. But they do make you still wear a jacket. Uh, I guess I get it. The world is a very casual place now. Uh, but preserving that kind of upscale tradition is understandable. Uh, it's great to see that there's uh, someone still doing it. But that's another question for you folks. Do you like the men wear must-wear suits and jackets rule? Uh, I use it as a great excuse to wear a blazer because I never dress up anymore, but it's definitely, it, it makes people uncomfortable if they don't dress like that, but I'd be interested to, to know what you think. Is it a, it, is it dead? Is there still space for it? Let me know. In a uh, very quickie restaurant regret news, uh, Rebel, the famed casual uh, but still stellar French spot in, in New York City, closed on November 18th. And I, I, I say regret because I never got the opportunity to eat there. It got amazing reviews from locals and critics alike. I'm really, really sad I never made it. But best of luck to Daniel Eddy, the very talented chef who may or may not move to Philadelphia. I mean, we'll see. Next up, <laughs> I can't believe this is a thing. Oh, my God. Eater, specifically Amanda Clutt, is uh, addressing a concern from a reader that asked for a, quote, restaurant guide that roots out sexism, misogyny, and assault, end quote. The idea being that they create a good restaurant 100 list that highlights places that provide great work environments for their staff. And I know this is me coming off of that mental health rant, but the execution of this whole thing sounds insanely flawed to me. She says, she says it herself, right? Quote, the problem is always the framework and data collection, end quote. They all, they, like, they already spend thousands of dollars to send Bill Addison around the U.S. and review places, and the last thing restaurants want is Eater calling them to say, hey, can you give us a heads up on the last time you had a sexual harassment case? We want to publish it online and tell everyone about it, and, like, it's not going to work, right? I, and this is just my suggestion, one guy's suggestion, I would much rather see it as a positive initiative, right? Similar to the kind of fortune list of 100 best companies to work for. If you guys haven't ever worked for like a hotel or like a startup or like even a bigger company like Facebook, they use that as a way to like justify like this is a great place to be working. Why not create that for restaurants, right? That does a multitude of things and attracts better people for the restaurants and definitely makes Eater known as an authority and an advocate in that space. But again, those are just my thoughts. I would definitely consult that list if I was like a culinary school student looking for my first job. If there was a list of like 100 great places to work, that would also tie so much more of that into the equation uh, as opposed to like just the red pen offenses, right? Like if you just reach out to restaurants and say like, they would come to you, right, with, the, with that information. If you focused on profitability and creative process and scalability, all of that would come into play and that would get people excited. And then also if there was like a, a, a icing on the cake thing where you were like, by the way, we also have never had a sexual harassment lawsuit. That would be an interesting list to see. I just, I, I personally just did a quick Google search to find a list like that, and there's only, <laughs> there's only an article that says six best chains to work for, and coincidentally, the li the link right below that is Eater's 38 restaurants. So that's just my thoughts, Eater. If you're listening, this idea is on me. You, you guys can execute on it. I just really, really like to see it, and I really feel like it could actually benefit the industry in a positive way. 
One more quickie news story before we get into the non-industry news story of the week. There is a list of 22 magazines that talk about food that are all under the same umbrella now, and I just want you guys all to be aware of it. So Time Inc. just sold to Meredith Corp. over the weekend in a cash sale for $3 billion. Man, what does $3 billion in cash look like? I'm just kidding. I know what that means, but I'm just curious. What does it look like? I mean, would it fit into this room? Uh, Who knows? Always, uh, those magazines uh, that moved over include, I'm going to see if I can actually pull it up on my history. Um, No, it's not going to let me pull it up. Um, But I know Food and Wine is one of those magazines. A lot of it is also like the kind of town and country, um, homes and gardens style magazines. But do 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 you read any of this stuff? Uh, whether or not it affects the quality of the magazines, I'm not entirely sure. It's going to be great to maybe see increased funding in more travel content for these for these magazines. But honestly, I, I honestly have a pileup of Bon Appetit and Food and Wine in my apartment right now. I just don't have time to read them. It's just not interesting enough for me to dive into them. Um, my girlfriend got a yearly subscription, so we still get every single issue. But I prefer to get my content online, and then I curate the best stuff uh, from that stuff and then regurgitate it to you and that's what this lovely show is I, I i that that keeps me busy enough but do you read any of these magazines let me know i'd love to know um if that that actually affects affects you guys uh so last up and our non-industry story of this week i got a book this week uh where can i find it uh i don't want to pull out my headphones but i'm gonna find it mm. i should have been more prepared for this show huh That's so sad. Um, it's probably in the other room. It's called Tribe of Mentors, and it's by Tim Ferriss. And I really, I really, really implore any of you that are interested in, you know, kind of, it's a guy that I've mentioned in my videos before. I pre-ordered it because I love the author. If you guys are looking to improve your mental health or business savvy or financial education or creativity, I highly recommend this book. Um he actually had Eric Repair on the show the other day uh, on his podcast. I really love Tim Ferriss, so huge shout-out and congratulations to him on a great book. I'm only a few pages in right now because it's kind of a bitch to lug around. It's a giant, giant book, so I only read it at home. And I'm also working my way through Elements of Dessert. Uh, that's this one right here. You can even tell that that's much more readily available to me. That is for our cookbook club on Patreon. So that is... Uh, I'm trying to do two books at once, and that never turns out to be a, a good situation, but I, I'm, I'm making my way through it, and it is a book that I recommend to you guys if you want to get a little bit of insight from amazing performers on what they do to, to, to win the day and be successful in their lives. So with that, this has been episode 41 of The Emulsion. Thank you so, so much for listening. Just a quick little reminder before you take off, if you want to support this or any of the other content I do for as little as $1 per month, that is like less than whatever you bought on Black Friday, I would love for you to check out my page on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash justincana. There you get a ton of amazing access and behind the scenes and gear giveaways and industry advice and cookbook reviews. Again, for just as little as $1 per month, that is $12 a year. That is actually the same price as a bonus appetite subscription i'd sincerely appreciate your support and for everyone listening that's already supporting i can't 
thank you guys enough. If you can't swing the Patreon right now, but you still want to support what I do, I'm in the process of building a super badass, exciting, value-dropping email newsletter for you guys. I'm sending this week's edition this week. If you want to go ahead and check it out on my website, justinconna.com, we'll get you all set up. If you have stories you want covered on next week's show, I rely on you guys for some of these stories. Shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. Subscribe if you aren't subscribed already, and definitely leave a thumbs up on this video or consider leaving a review on iTunes if you listen there. Regardless of where you are, I appreciate your ears. My name is Justin Kana. Have a good one.